Good morning, Redemption Church. My name is John, and I'm a member here. This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll be reading chapter 4, verse 4, all the way through to chapter 5, verse 9. Verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. This is God's word for us today. I picked up this book called The Good Life after I heard one of the authors give a TED talk by the same name. And uh, they're two Harvard professors, and they've uh, conducted what they call is the longest human study of adult development in history. It's actually been going on for 85 years and counting. It started in 1938. The authors are two Harvard professors. They're the fourth uh, set of directors that are conducting this study. And so what they did was there was an original 724 participants. It's grown to about 1,300 now. 
but they looked at, at people from both advantaged and disadvantaged backgrounds. So there were half of the guys were Harvard graduates, half were you know, people who didn't even go to college at all. And so they, they, they're trying to, to consistently study their lives to see what they can learn over time. It's considered to be a very scientific study. In fact, page three says, this book is built on a bedrock of scientific research. And so that's supposed to be really impressive. But I appreciate the author's honesty later as he talks about the good life and all the things kind of that they learned and observed. He admits on page 24, he said that they really haven't discovered anything new. In fact, scientific knowledge is finally catching up to true ancient wisdom that has survived the test of time. I appreciate that statement a lot. Um, uh, you know, I pre I, I've enjoyed reading the book. I haven't finished it. It started off better than it continued, you know, like a lot of books. But um, I find that when I look at a book like Ecclesiastes, which is way smaller than this book, but it's, to me, about a thousand times more helpful. But there have been some significant uh, statements that I've taken from that book, and one of them is this. He said, after studying hundreds of entire lives, we can confirm what all of us already know deep down, that a huge range of factors contribute to a person's happiness. The delicate, the delicate balance of economic, social, psychological, and health contributors is complex and ever-changing. I think that's, that's true, right? There is no simple formula for happiness or for the good life. We can't, we can't narrow it down to a sound bite or a sentence. It's complex. It's a complex number of factors that go into it. And I think we, we understand that when we look at Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is asking this question around as well. Two times in the book we've seen, the author has said something like, he was searching for what was good for man to do during his days under the sun. Right? He too is searching for the good life. And, and Ecclesiastes is a complex combination of theology and philosophy and even a little self-help. It asks questions like, who is God? Who is man? What is life all about? And how do we live life well? These questions are woven throughout Ecclesiastes. And they're not presented to us in a strictly logical or Western way of thinking like we might like, right? It's not a dissertation of sorts. But rather, it's presented to us in more of a conversational Eastern way, I think we'd say. It's a, it's a book of Eastern, ancient Eastern wisdom. So one moment we'll see the author, Kohelet, he'll talk about politics. Then he'll talk about friendship. Then he'll talk about worship. And then it'll go back to politics. It's kind of this weaving conversation. In fact, that's what we're going to see. We're kind of picking up the study today in the middle of, of a conversation that we're having with, with Solomon or the author, Kohelet. And so as we engage in our conversation today, we remember from last week, we're picking him up. He's identifying 10 vanities that he's observing in life. Last week we looked at the first three. Today we're going to look at five more and then next week, we're going to look at the final two in this section. And so we want to be asking two questions. 
What is vanity? Right? How do we define it? What does it look like? Where does it come from? What are its sources? And then the secondly, we want to ask, what is the best response to vanity that we can make? Some things we can do nothing about. That, that would be last week, the, the vanities that we looked at last week of injustice, death, and oppression. There really isn't much we can do about those things. It's part of the reality that we live in. And Solomon didn't give us any sort of wisdom as to how we can best respond to that. But there are other vanities, the ones that we're going to look at today, that we can minimize their effects in our lives. In fact, Ecclesiastes says we can never totally escape the vanity of life under the sun, but there is a better way than other ways to, live, to, to respond to it. And that's what I'm calling today the better way. As the Mandalorian says, this is the way. Right. <laughs> this is the way. That's right. So that's what we're looking for today, the better way. And so, so the idea here is through this wisdom, we can experience the better life that he is recommending to us, which was summarized last week in chapter 3, verse 12, that there's nothing better for a man to do than to be joyful and do good. And if you can live this way, this is the gift of God. And so this is what he's trying to teach us. He's giving us wisdom so that we can live this better way of joy and goodness. So we're going to look at five vanities today. And so the first one, which is really the fourth one, because this is the fourth in succession, vanity number four, let's look at the success of envy. The success of envy. Notice verse four. Then I saw, again, he's observing the world around him. He's looking at vanity. He says, I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever felt like that? Like, man, the economy just runs on greed, right? It's just all people just envying one another. Now, Solomon may be using hyperbole here to make his point, and we can allow him that, but he's saying all work and all skill in work really is the result of envy. Now, what is envy? Well, the Oxford Dictionary defines it as a feeling of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, or luck. <laughs> and so, you know, that's what motivates people in, in business. That's what motivates people to work, right? They want what somebody else has. Some people have, have suggested that the foundation of capitalism is greed, right? and, and uh, competition in the marketplace. If I can make a better product for a better price, I can do better than you, right? And I can have more money than you. But Marxism isn't any better, right? Marxism is also founded on envy. The working class can violently overthrow the ruling class, and they can get what the ruling class has, because that's what they want, right? And so, Envy is the big motivator. The Bible talks about envy, selfish ambition as being the, the wisdom of the world, or what we might call even demonic wisdom. And it's not something that can be solved by changing government structures or economic systems. This is a heart problem. 
And this is what Jesus, in his ministry, he identified, that, that the biggest problem we have is not the external environment we live in or the things that, that we eat or that come into our body. It's what comes out of our hearts, right? That's where the problem lies. Out of our heart comes sinful thoughts and greed and, and envy. And so nothing external can change this. We need a change of heart. Greed was something that Jesus also warned us about. In Luke 12, 15, he said, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. That's been a big theme in, in Ecclesiastes, right? Life is more, about, more, more than accumulating possessions or trying to achieve uh, something. And so what is the better way? Well, notice the better way here that he says is a balanced life of rest and work. Now, the first thing he does is he, he exposes the wrong response to this in verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh, right? There's a person who says, oh, it's all about greed and it's all about envy. I'm just checking out. I'm not going to be a part of that. And he folds his hands. That's a sign of doing nothing, right? He doesn't do any work. But he says that only results in his own self-destruction. He just eats his flesh, right? He's, it's not going to help him or anybody else. And so the better way is in verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toiling and striving after the wind. I like the New American Standard Version. It says, better is one hand full of rest than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. This has helped me a lot in my life. And I hope it will help you as well. It paints a different picture of what we're striving for in life, right? God created us not to just be two-fistedly pursuing work all the time, right? He, he, he created us to have rest, and I think rest includes margins in our life, time to enjoy life, time to enjoy relationships, as we'll talk about in a minute. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the better way Solomon is talking about here. So how do you set your financial goals, your career goals? Where do you start? Do you start by saying, what do I want? That may not be a good place to start, right? That engenders envy, right? It's, it's what do you want? Well, I want what they have. I want what he has. I want what she has, right? Maybe a better question is, what does God want for my life? What is God's intention for my life? His intention is that we should never envy others ever for anything. But we should look, God, what have you made me? Who have you made me to be? What have you designed me to do? How can I contribute and how can I live a balanced life of rest and work? Well, that leads us to the, the next vanity, vanity number five kind of follows from this first one. They're, they're related a little bit. And this one is the lonely workaholic in verses 7 through 12. Notice verse 7, he says, Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, neither son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? <clears throat> this also is vanity and an unhappy 
business. There's that phrase that we've seen several times now, unhappy business. The word unhappy can be evil. This is the evil business. Someone, this is the two-fisted person, right? Just toiling, 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 and they are, the key here is he has no other. They are alone. Of course, Dickens Scrooge would be the classic example described here, but we see this more and more in our culture today. The lonely workaholic pursuing career advancement and wealth instead of relationships. I think it's interesting that this is becoming, this used to be a problem with men in particular, but it's becoming a problem with, with women as well. In fact, there are several prominent women today in our culture who have platforms who are promoting the prioritization of career and wealth over motherhood and family. This is one of the achievements, or we might even say consequences, of the feminist revolution. But whether you're a man or a woman, Solomon is saying here, this is vanity and this is an evil, unhappy business. What's the better way? The better way <clears throat> is to prioritize relationships over career and wealth. Notice what he says in verse 9, just simply stated, two are better than one. That's a great thing to take away today. Two are better than than one. That's actually the, one of the biggest conclusions they come to in this book here. This book is really, the whole book is about prioritizing relationships in your life. He says on page 21, people who are more connected to family, to friends, and to community are happier and physically healthier than people who are less well-connected. And Kohelet would agree. He, he sets forth here four benefits of friendship in verses 9 to 12. The first one is that these, these uh, kinds of friendships are profitable. Notice what he says. They have a, <clears throat> a good reward for their toil, a good profit for their toil. This shows the value of partnerships in business. The second one is support in verse 10. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Now, we can think of this in very literal terms, right? If somebody physically falls and they're alone and they break their leg, they can't get up, they need somebody to help them up. But we can also think of these, all of these in metaphorical terms as well. You go through life, you go through a trial, you go through a difficult time, and if you're alone, you can be overwhelmed by such an event. But if you have a friend, they can support you and help you make it through. Oh, thanks, Stephanie. <clears throat> the third benefit to friendship here is comfort in verse 11. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Again, think metaphorically. This is a cold world. And when we have companionship and friendship, we can keep warm together in a cold world. And the fourth benefit here is strength. Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two can withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, some people quote this in their, in their weddings, uh, you know, talk about husband and wife coming together, maybe God is the third strand, or maybe children are the third strands, and, and, and that's fine, but I don't think Solomon was trying to limit it to marriage, right? He's just talking about friendship, companionship, the, the value of relationship. You see, because God designed us for relationship. God himself is relational. This is what makes 
uh, the God of the Bible different from any other God in, you know, that, we, that we see in other religions. God is relational, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's eternally relational, and he has made us, his creatures, to be relational as well. And so one of the, the common graces that God gives to all people is the possibility of relationship, of friendship. It's open to all, but I believe it's maximized in Christ. And as Christians... Those of us who experience the love and forgiveness of God, we have the ability to give that love and forgiveness to others. That should, that should maximize our ability to love and find friendship and companionship and relationship. In fact, Jesus said, this is my command, that you love one another. It was as if he was saying, look, this is what I want you to do and know. This is my priority above everything else. Love one another. In fact, he said, by this, all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. So this is something that we as Christians should excel at, right? We should, we should be an example of the kind of love that God designed people to experience. So that is the better way. Prioritize relationships over career and wealth. All right, now let's get to the next vanity number six is continual disappointment with leaders. Now, Solomon dips his toes into politics here. And again, the, the conversation is kind of all over the place, right? And, uh, and so I have to talk about it because he talks about it, right? He's not afraid to talk about politics because he recognizes political and government leaders do have an impact on our lives. So notice verses 13 through 16. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king <clears throat> who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been, poor, been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Now, these are, it's interesting that this, these are some of the verses that many people uh, note that this could not have been Solomon writing this, uh, this scripture here because he was a king. And these scriptures are questioning the value of absolute long-term loyalty to a king, right? Because it's saying it's better if you have a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king. And some people say, well, Solomon would never say that. He was the king, right? But I don't think that's right. I think of all people, Solomon would have recognized and understood the fickleness of politics. In fact, his own father, David, may be in the background of these verses because David was a poor man, a poor shepherd boy who, uh, you know, he was, his life was sought by the ruling king at the time, the foolish king Saul at the time, right? And then, but then he rose to prominence, became king, but then later in his life, what happened? He too became foolish uh, through Uriah and Bathsheba and his own son, uh, tried, to over, tried to kill him and overthrow him. So there's just this up and down, you know, this up and down of politics back in this day that, that Solomon surely would have observed. And so it seems that in these verses, he's suggesting and maybe exposing the corrupting influence of power when someone's in a position of power for too long. It's better to get them out, put somebody wise in their place, right? And, and if anything else, he's exposing the inability of fallen humans to ever be completely adequate to lead other humans. And so I think the better way here that he suggests is choose wise leaders over fools if you can, 
but don't expect too much. Right? We could probably all agree on that. Now, I find it interesting, you know, this may be somewhat of an indirect promotion of democracy. I mean, Kohelet never heard of the word democracy and probably didn't have any examples of democracy. But nonetheless, the idea of being able to remove leaders and prevent long-term corruption seems to be a good takeaway from this passage. So, this is one of those things we can't really do much about, right, as individuals. Um, but when we can, choose wise leaders over fools, but don't expect too much. All right, the next vanity is vanity number seven, evil in religion. I'm going to spend a little more time here. I think this is maybe the most practical section for us here. Evil in religion. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, this is interesting because... One of the themes in Ecclesiastes has been, as we've noticed, is that if we're going to find joy in life, he keeps saying it's a gift of God, right? It's something that comes from God. It's not something that we achieve. It's something that we receive as a gift from God. So someone might be reading Solomon's book and, and, and saying, okay, if joy is a gift from God, then I need to get some religion in my life, right? I need to get God on my side. I need to find this blessing, Right? And so Solomon is here saying, be very careful as you approach God. Guard your steps. Be careful that your efforts to win God's favor don't turn him against you instead. Notice what he says in verse, at the end of verse 6, or 6b. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? You see, he's saying it's possible that you try to approach God, and if you approach God in the wrong way, you can have the opposite happen to you than what you expect. Instead of getting his blessing, you can make him angry, and he'll destroy the work of your hands. And so what is it that makes God angry at our voice? Well, there's three things that he identifies here. The first is rash and hasty words. Notice verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. This reminds us of James 1.19 that says, Be quick to hear, be slow to speak. I think the best example of this is a parable that Jesus told in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. We read there that he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. That's a recipe for disaster right there, right? And so he says there were two men that went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, a very religious man, right? These were the most religious people in Jesus' day. And another was a tax collector, identified as a sinner, somebody who the Pharisees would say God had rejected, right? Notice, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. Those are rash and hasty words. Those are foolish words. It's what he talks about here, the offering of fools. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. 
I tell you, Jesus said, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. I think this is the definition of rash words, especially when we come to God. Rash words are those words that exalt ourselves and despise others. God hates this kind of speech, and he will humble those who exalt themselves in this way. So that's the first thing that can anger God, rash and hasty words. The second thing is just too many words in general. Notice verses 2b and 3. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Sometimes people think the more they say at church, the better, right? But that's the wrong way to think. God wants our words to be few. In fact, Jesus said this in Matthew 6, verses 7 through 8. He says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Sometimes you think of the... the uh, Praying the rosaries, I don't know where that came from, but you know, you're just like repeating prayers over and over, thinking that the more you say these, these prayers, the more God is going to hear you. No. No. God doesn't want that kind of mindless, meaningless talk. The third thing that can anger God is false promises and unfulfilled vows in verses 4 to 6. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Now, Jesus said a lot about this. If you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus comes back to this theme a lot. He talks about making foolish vows, and he says, don't do it. Just let your yes be yes, your no be no. He says anything beyond that is, uh, is evil. And so, God takes seriously what we promise. So we need to take seriously what we promise. And probably the wisest course is, just don't make the promise, right? I mean, that's probably the best way to go about things. There are, there are times when vows are appropriate. A marriage vow is, a, is an appropriate vow. There may be other situations, but we should be very, very reticent to enter into a vow. The better way that he's recommending here, is carefully listen to God. Right back there in chapter 5, verse 1. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. God has a lot to teach us. We have a lot to learn. We have nothing to teach God. We have nothing that God needs. So we need to listen and be careful to obey God's voice. And he says here, this is what it means to fear God. God is not to be used or manipulated. And this is what many people think religion is all about, right? I'm going to get a little religion. I'm going to give a little money in the offering plate. I'm going to make some kind of commitment or make some kind of vow, and I'll get God to bless whatever it is that I want him to bless. That is not the kind of approach to him that God blesses. Rather, joy in life, the gift of joy that God gives, is found in a genuine love of God that desires to know and understand who he truly is. And a heart 
posture of listening to God. This is really what our personal Bible reading and our devotions are all about, right? I mean, sometimes we talk about devotions as if they're kind of this magic formula, like I did my devotions today and I had a great day, you know, and, and we think that by doing devotions it kind of improves the quality of our life, but that's not really what it's about at all. Our devotions, our Bible reading, is, is our posture of listening to God. And, and, and what, where it's really beneficial is not when you do it for a day or a week or a month or even a year, but when you do it for year after year after year. You're reading your Bible. You're listening carefully to God, coming to understand who He is, what He's like, and what He wants you to do in your life, how you can best respond to Him. This is what Solomon is recommending here. Now, the ones who may need to hear this warning the most are teachers and preachers, right? The ones who talk the most at church. <laughs> and so I take this personally very seriously. I mean, James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And so this is something very serious for, for those who stand up to preach and teach to, to be aware of. We need to be aware of preachers who are big talkers, right? especially those who've had dreams and visions and meetings with angels and heard from God on their LSD trip, you know, I mean, whatever the case. I mean, you got to watch out for people like this, right? The best preachers and teachers are those who listen carefully to God and are diligent to handle God's words of truth accurately. They focus on God and his word, not on themselves and their words. See, the ultimate, the reality is it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what Danny thinks or anyone else who stands up on this platform. The only thing that really matters is what does God say, right? And that's why at Redemption Church, we value expositional preaching. Every week when you come here, you'll hear us read the scriptures and, and focus on what it, what it says. And our whole goal is to try to explain it and apply it so that we all are submitting to God's word. So this is the better way that he's recommending here. Carefully listen to God. And then the final vanity we will look at today, vanity number eight, the oppression and injustice of bureaucracy. I find this very interesting. There's only two verses here. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them, but this is gain for land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. I find this really interesting, especially this phrase, do not be amazed at the matter. We should not be surprised when we see oppression of the poor and violation of justice and righteousness. Now, why is that? Why would Solomon say this? <clears throat> well, I think he knew the Old Testament really well. And I want to take just a moment to read a passage from 1 Samuel 8. This is a fascinating passage. This is when Israel made the transition from a very decentralized government to a centralized government. This is when they asked for a king. It seems like when God brought them into the promised land, they, they didn't have a king. There were 12 tribes, and they were, there was kind of this decentralized local leadership. But then the people came to, the prophet at the time was Samuel, and they said, we want a king, give us a king. And so God was kind of offended by this. But he said, okay, go ahead and give them a king. Just make sure you tell them what's going to happen when they get a king. And that's what we read about in 1 Samuel 8, starting with verse 9. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. 
And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be their perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. <laughs> this is the oppression, right? This is the injustice. This is the oppression. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And the people said, we still want a king, right? <laughs> so it's... It's just a fascinating passage of Scripture, you know, and, and I think we're all looking for that king, that person, that leader, right? But, but it, we never find that person. And Jesus said in Matthew 20, 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. That's just the way governments work, right? They get in there, they rule, their friends rule, there's officials, officials, officials. It's right, that, that, that's just the way it works. And their great men exercise authority over them, but Jesus says this, It is not that way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. So Jesus introduces something different. The upside down, he turns all this upside down. And I think that's what Solomon is talking about here in uh, Ecclesiastes, verse 9. He says, This is a gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Now, this, this verse in Hebrew is very difficult. You read 10 different commentaries, you'll get 10 different ideas of what this verse means. My best take of it from the context here is that it should read, this is gain for a land, a, a king who cultivates the fields, right? Someone who's involved in the work, like the, 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 the grunt work, so to speak, an ordinary guy. I think uh, the best example of this was George Washington. I don't know if you've ever studied the life of George Washington, but he was actually a farmer. If you go to Mount Vernon, you'll see he, he, he loved farming. That's really what he wanted to do. Um, but he was, you know, obviously general in the American Revolution, and uh, all, the, all the people wanted to make George Washington the first king of America, and he refused. He said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to be a king. <laughs> and then he was president for eight years, served two terms, and at the end of that eight years, they wanted him to serve another four years, and he said, no, that's where term limits came from. He just wanted to go back to his farm and plow his fields. Now, I think that's a great example. That's what Solomon is saying here. This is a benefit to a land. And I think this is the kind of leader that Jesus was. If you think about this, Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, the very son of God, and what did he do when he came to earth? What was he like? Did he have a lot of power and wealth? You know, did he want everybody serving him? No, he came as a blue-collar worker. Right? He was a carpenter. I love that, because I'm a carpenter. <laughs> you know? But uh, he was just an ordinary guy. right? He's an ordinary guy. And, so, and, 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 and who were the leaders that he chose to start his kingdom, right? To start his church. They were ordinary men. And this is the way it's supposed to be in the church, right? We're not supposed to be this huge organization of professional leaders, you know. We, 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 the people who you, 
who you should have as your shepherds, your pastors, are people you should know that are ordinary people, right? We, to be a, a pastor in this church, you don't have to have a lot of money. You don't have to have a lot of position or power. You just have to have a lot of grace, right? You have to, we have to see God's grace at work in your life. That's what God calls the leaders of the church to be, to be examples of what Christians are supposed to be like. Jesus even said, don't call anyone your leader. You're all brothers, and you have one leader. And so this is the kind of, of, of government that we are to have in the church. We're to be a countercultural example of decentralized leadership where you have ordinary people who are leading you. And so I think that's the better way that he's talking about. The best leaders are ordinary people who serve. Ordinary people who serve. That was Jesus' example to us. He said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And the best leaders follow Jesus. So those are the five vanities we have in our passage today. The better way, let me just summarize them here, five, five uh, points of wisdom. And these aren't all of, this isn't everything that Ecclesiastes says, but certainly it's what we have today from this passage. The better way that we can respond to vanity in the world is to search for a balanced life of rest and work, prioritize relationships over career and wealth, choose wise leaders over fools if you can, but don't expect too much. Carefully listen to God and remember that the best leaders are ordinary people who serve. This is the way. Right. <laughs> the better way. So let me, uh, let's close together in prayer this morning. Father, you are a good and gracious king. We worship you this morning. Uh, we thank you for these words from uh, from Scripture. Lord, may we take them to heart. May they find a place in our lives. May they help us just in our lives as we seek to live for your honor and your glory, as we seek to live the best life that we can while we're in this, in this fallen world. As we experience vanity, Father, we pray that you would give us the wisdom to find the better way. In Jesus' name.